Hello, I'm Sean Baker, Festival and Creative Director for Margaret River Readers and Writers Festival, and this is the Readers and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Booker-nominated Scottish author Graham McRae Burnett, and our host is Jen Bowden. Hello and welcome to the Readers and Writers Podcast. My name is Jen Bowden and I am your host. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Just a quick note about me. I'm a journalist and I'm a writer and I'm an editor living in Perth, WA. I'm currently uh, doing my PhD at Curtin University and teaching there as well. Today, I am chatting with Graham McRae Burnett, author of the mind-bending new novel, Case Study. Graham was one of the recipients of the Scottish Book Trust's New Writers Awards, and his first novel, The Disappearance of Adele Badeau, was published to great critical acclaim. His second novel, His Bloody Project, was shortlisted for the 2016 Man Booker Prize and went on to win the Saltire Society Fiction Book of the Year Award. It has become a bestseller uh, in several countries and is published in 21 languages. His third book is The Accident on the A35, and his fourth is Case Study, which we are talking about today. Graham currently lives in Glasgow, which is where he is coming to us from today. Welcome, Graham. Hi, Jen. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's It's a sunny morning in Glasgow, um, believe it or not. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you'll pay for it. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Usually I jump into chatting about the book. Um, straight away but Graham and I actually go way back we were just chatting about this before we we came on and I think I was the first reviewer of his first book um, for the List magazine in Edinburgh do you reckon that's you were oh you absolutely you were the very first person to review my first book and if I had been a good interviewee I would have gone and sought out the interview the the review so that I could read it back to you but thankfully it was a positive one so we're still friends I can't remember if I interviewed you as well. I think I maybe did at some point, or at least chatted to you briefly um, for something to do with one of the list's features. But that that was, what year would that have been? Like way back? Uh, that was 2014. Yeah. So so a fair while now. That's it. We're both getting on I a bit. I suppose it is. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> it does. And then the great thing was that that uh, snippet from that review actually appeared in your uh, second book, His Bloody Project, which is the one that went on to be shortlisted for the booker, which made me feel like I totally made it in my in my literary journalism <laughs> it career. It kind of made me feel like I'd made it as well, to be <laughs> honest. Um, so, well, it's nice that the book transported us both to a different level then. Um, yeah, absolutely. That was the one. Can you tell us a bit about your journey from writer to published authors and maybe just explain uh, what the Scottish Book Trust uh, New Writers Awards are because we don't have them over here? Yeah, well, I mean, my journey to becoming a writer is, is quite a long one. So this could be a really long podcast. Um, I uh, just on the, on the Scottish Book Trust New Writers Awards, um, Scottish Book Trust basically a sort of charitable organisation that supports writing in Scotland um, in various ways, about, you know, encouraging reading in, in children and young people and so on. And they have an annual award scheme called the New Writers Awards, where 10, 10 to 12 writers get a sort of little package of, you know, £2,000 towards, you know, get, making time to writing. There's a mentoring scheme which I notoriously didn't take up because I'm so pig-headed and absolutely unmentorable. Um, <laughs> but actually, you know, it's, it's, for, it's for authors who haven't published a full-length book. 
the best thing about it for me was just meeting a, a sort of cohort of writers, you know, who are at the same sort of stage of their career. And you can complain about not getting published and how mm. impossible it is to get an agent. And I, I'm really, I'm still friends um, with most of the people, you know, from that group. And every writer struggles with rejection at the early part of their career. And just to have any outside organization come in and say, yes, you're, you're on the right track, you know, keep going. Is tremendously important. So, you know, I, at the time, that was a really, really important award to me. It was during that year that I found a publisher, Saraban Books, for my first book, which you then reviewed, The Disappearance of Adele Bado. And, um, you know, like, as with many first novels, you know, it sold, I don't know, maybe a thousand copies, which is sort of the benchmark of mild respectability, but clearly nobody's going to be making a living you know, from those kind of sales. So <laughs> I was supporting myself at the time as a painter and decorator. I still have my brushes, just in case. <laughs> just in case. Um, I wrote His Bloody Project. And um, as you've mentioned, you know, I, when when the book came out, it came out to, you know, very little fanfare, very few reviews. And the sales were, you know, not great. And then it got shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And, you know, that just shone a, a spotlight on on it, which it, the prize does that to any book. But it's, for some reason, his bloody project just really took off. I mean, it sold, it outsold all the other books in the shortlist in total, um, which is quite <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. Um, I didn't know I that. Know, I, and you know, one of one of the very first uh, things where I, I sort of realised the sort of importance of this was when uh, Michael Hayward of Text publishing in Australia got in touch and wanted to buy the book and I'm like oh my god like somebody in Australia wants to buy my book this is incredible you know and um, I still have a fantastic relationship with Tex I, I love them as publishers and I love Michael and Jane and everybody at the publisher and they, they brought me over uh, I suppose it was 2017 I came over to Adelaide Brisbane Melbourne uh, Sydney did a little tour which was absolutely amazing uh, so yeah, that can that's kind of takes me up to um, the his bloody project part, but that was a really transformational moment, being you know shortlisted for the Booker Prize, of course. But it wasn't as important as being reviewed by you. <laughs> oh well, thank you very much. There's my ego <laughs> nicely stroked for the afternoon. <laughs> How did you find out that you were shortlisted for the Booker? Like, where were you? What were you doing? And what was your reaction? Well, I mean, the first thing is you get um, you get a phone call for the long list. I mean, even even the long list is you know a, a really big deal. Uh, so, thirteen books in the long list. And I will, I was in absolutely genuinely uh, painting a lady's toilet in my hometown of Kilmarnock, um, <laughs> and my my publisher uh, Sarah Sarah Hunt had great difficulty getting hold of me because I'd actually left my mobile phone at home that day. So I had to tell the person in charge of the job that, you know, I'd actually written a novel and it's just been long listed for the booker. I need to go and talk to the literary editor of The Guardian. I think they thought this was really the worst excuse they'd ever heard for taking a day off. <laughs> um, I told them I'd be back in a couple of days to finish the job. But the booker prize just kind of took over my life, actually. And um I was 46 when my first book was published and I'd had the experience with Adele Badeau of like, I mean, you know, it's, it's an un, unimpeachably amazing moment when your first book is published, but then there's a kind of reality check when you realize you're not going to be a bestseller and suddenly be making a living and, you know, moving to LA. So when the Booker Prize came along, I just made up my mind that I was going to take advantage of every opportunity that it brought. When you're in a position as I was of being a pretty unknown writer, 
that's when it, it can really lift your career. I mean, if you're a more well-established writer, when that happens, then it, it won't have such a big effect. So yeah, I was I was down doing a painting job, and the terrible thing is, um, I never finished the painting job. Sorry about <laughs> your toilet. Um, it's probably still not painted. We're we're here to talk about case study today, which is your fourth book. But just before we get onto that, I want to ask you why it is that you stuck with Saraband? Because I mean, I, I feel like after a, a booker shortlisting, you would have probably had offers from um, other publishers. Did you? Well, with his bloody project, some other publishers did get in touch with Saraband and say, do you need some help with this? <laughs> um, you know, we'll, we'll take it from here, little publisher. And, <laughs> you know, that's very flattering in a way as a, as a, as a writer. But I felt that um, Sarah Hunt and Saraband, they had placed their faith in me and they nurtured me and they hadn't put any pressure on me as a writer. And they deserved the success that... They were getting through. It was a you know it was a massive success for a publisher like like Sarah. It's a small independent publisher, mm-hmm. um, so it was a really huge success for them. So I absolutely didn't want to take the book away from them. And during the process, um, when I was kind of in the spot, I was quite vocal about how important it is to have an independent publishing scene um, in Britain. I'm sure in any country. So with my third book, um, the accident on the A35, I really felt that. Uh, I wanted Saraband also to publish that book. It was also a sequel to my first book, The Disappearance mm. of Adele McDowell, so it kind of made sense to publish it with, with Saraband. With Case Study, um, I felt as it's a standalone book, I did. And I, I also, at the time, until fairly recently, I didn't have an agent, <laughs> which is tremendously <laughs> unusual. But I, I did acquire an agent. I became untenable not to have an agent. So with Case Study, it was sent out, and there was... Uh, an auction um, between a few publishers and you know any of those publishers I would have been absolutely delighted to have been published by you know ranging from large indies to you know sort of mainstream London you know publishers but Saraband um, they they pitched in for the book and they they put the offer they put together not only financially um, but in terms of the thought and the thought they'd put into it and how they would market the book and so on. It was just incredibly impressive. So they, they, they won the book, so to speak, on merit. You know, it wasn't a sentimental decision. And, you know, I've been really impressed with everything they've done. So, and also we have a great, we have a great time. We have yeah. a great relationship. And I think it is important to enjoy things as well. <laughs> yeah. And if, uh, if it isn't broke, then just don't fix it. I mean, if, yeah, if you work yeah. well with them and they publish you in a way that you want to be published, then there seems no Absolutely. reason to go anywhere else. Just before we move on to a case study, I just wanted to ask a bit about your writing style. You have a very uh, literary style that, that often feels like it's kind of harking back to past writers. Um, it always makes me think of James Hogg. Um, oh, yeah. Or like George Douglas Brown, um, those old Scottish Scottish writers, a little bit Robert Louis Stevenson. How did you come to find your style? Um, well, that is a really good question um, and a sort of difficult one to answer. I mean, as I mentioned, I was 46 when I published Disappearance of Adele Wado. I'd been writing since I was a teenager, when in, the, in my early days of you know writing short stories and stuff. Back when I was a student at Glasgow University and talking late 80s here, I'm that old. You know, I think I sort of just tried out a lot of different styles, you know, not in a sort of deliberate way, but that's just, you know, you read something and then you like it. And um, 
you write you write something a bit like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, that time in Scotland, you know, James Kelman was publishing a lot of his short stories. Janice Galloway had just published um, Trick is to Keep Breathing, a really seminal, seminal Scottish contemporary work. And, um, you know, so I was kind of writing stuff kind of like that. I, you know, just over the years, I was pretty much always working on something. And so I think if you say I have a style, then it just evolved over time. I, I would say that, you know, I, I kind of try to write in a way that's appropriate to the subject matter. Um, mm. I mean, when you talk about Hogg and, and Stevenson, I, I guess you're alluding to the, what are often known as the metafictional aspects of my yes. books. Yeah. Um, and the fact that both Case Study and His Bloody Project are to basically found document novels where I claim that the material presented has not been written by me but has been sent to me or found by me um i mean even with my two sort of detective novels i claim that they were written by somebody else and i was actually i'm actually only the translator of the work i mean hogg's an interesting example because of course his great book confessions of a justified sinner begins with the editor's narrative and the, the, the main story is bookended by these literary devices in Stevenson, of course, you find different ways of telling the story. You know, letters, um, different people giving accounts. An example I always think of um, is Wilkie Collins' The Moonstone, in which the story, the entire novel is, you only need to look at the contents page, the entire novel is narrated by different characters. And as you read on, you come to doubt the veracity of the account that you have previously read. So, I mean, I just, to me, it's like, this is, you know, if I think of myself as a novelist, which I do um, now, these are the ways that are available to a novelist to tell the story. And, you know, as you say, it harks back to to the past. Um, and I think, you know, the, all, all the devices or techniques I use in my books are to be found in 19th century fiction, whether it's Scottish fiction or the English literary tradition sort of, Wilkie Collins, for example. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's, it's nothing, um, it doesn't seem anything radical or experimental to me. It's just a way of telling the story. And, you know, you can use these techniques to sort of perhaps engage the readers in different ways. And it's the sort of thing I enjoy if I'm reading a book. Yeah, I was going to say, as a writer, do you find that it, it's more fun to play around with sort of questions of truth and authenticity and found documents and all those sort of sort of tropes? I, I suppose, yes, I do. Yeah, I, lo- I love that stuff. I love that stuff. Absolutely. I, I love stuff that appears to be real. Um, and whether that's sort of, in, you know, in, in terms of film, you know, sort of what are maybe called mockumentaries, you know, where people mm. use documentary techniques. Um, to make something seem real. And uh, that's, in a way, both in His Bloody Project and in Case Study, I use sort of literary documentary techniques, the techniques of sort of literary journalism to make it appear that certain characters are real. These are quite simple devices. I don't know if you want me to reveal them. But, you know, even if, if you use a footnote in a novel, it kind of signifies a reality elsewhere outside the text and it makes people think it is real. And I, I was very aware, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about Collins Braithwaite, mm-hmm. one of the characters in case study. I was pretty aware that when I was writing the book, the people were going to Google Collins Braithwaite. And, and since the book's come out, you know, I, I, I actually, this is absolutely true. Uh, just, just this week, 
I had an email from a reader in Western Australia. <laughs> um, and she, she said, oh, my, my husband and I have just been enjoying reading Case Study. Um, he thinks Collins Braithwaite isn't real, but I think he's real. Can you tell us? And I had to write back to her and say, I'm very sorry, but your husband is right. I totally Googled him. I was thinking, oh, is this his contemporary of Adi Lang? Like, oh. Where did he yeah. come from? I've never heard of him. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I should have known better, really, shouldn't I? After having read. Uh, well, I mean, then some, somebody else on Twitter again last week just said something like, if these characters were fictional, they'd be completely unbelievable. <laughs> I know it takes a moment to think about that because um, yeah. they are fictional. Um, did you set them right? Did you say sorry, mate? No, 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 I no, I just replied saying thanks. Glad you enjoyed the book. You know, you know, but it's what is real, you know, it's a it's a novel. We want it to seem real. It's a, yeah. it's a question that um as kind of since I wrote the discipline of Del Bado, and as I say, I used this device whereby I presented the book as a translation of another author's work, an author called Raymond Bruni. And the book actually contains a biography, a sort of mini biography of Raymond Bruni. And, you know, I had no idea in my naivety that people would actually believe this to be true. And, um, you know, when I went, I went down to London when the book came out. And um, I mean, obviously, when I had a book launch in Glasgow, all my friends came and they all knew that I'd written the book. But when I went down to London, I went to a couple of bookshops and the booksellers thought it was a, a cult French novel that was being reprinted, uh, which <laughs> I absolutely. You know, I just loved that. I was like, that's so cool. It's like, it's actually like a proper French novel. Um, yeah, you could have you had know, them so, going. But I, I had no idea that, you know, these devices that I've used would be kind of taken at face value. I Very guess it is because it's so rarely used. Like, I haven't seen it for quite a while. And I'm, like I said, you know, my my first thought went to Hog. And that was, you know, way back, way, way back. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about what case study is about? We, we should get onto the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so case study is set in London in 1965, and it concerns a young woman whose name we never learn. And she believes that this uh, radical psychotherapist called Collins Braithwaite has driven her sister Veronica to suicide. So she does what any normal person would do under the circumstances and uh, presents herself as a client to Collins Braithwaite um, using the assumed name and to some extent an assumed identity of Rebecca Smith. Um, at the beginning of the novel, I say that somebody has got in touch with me and wants to send me five notebooks written by his cousin. And so the five notebooks really written by the young woman, that's, that's the bulk of the novel. The other sort of sections of the novel are my biography of the psychotherapist character, Collins Braithwaite, who she goes to see. So the novel alternates between these two, these different sections. I honestly expected it to be really dense and difficult to get into. But again, I should have known better. Um, it was actually really engaging and quite, quite funny in some places, um, which surprised me. It's definitely my funniest book. But, yeah, um, it totally is. I, 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 have to, I have to admit that um, I don't think there are too many laughs in his bloody project. No. Um, but, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the title kind of gives that away. With, um, <laughs> I mean, even when I was doing the final edits for Case Study, there are certain lines that I would laugh out loud at. And I, I think the, the sort of narrative voice of the female character, because she's, she's kind of upper middle class public school girl, 
and she, she has this kind of rather dated vocabulary um, and mm. she's very snobbish and a bit snarky about people and I think there's humour to be found there. I mean, that's that's maybe just, I don't know, is that what you found? I mean... Yeah, I wanted to ask you about her actually because I I actually really didn't like her. Like it, I really I enjoyed that. the book, and I kind of yeah. I connected with the story and found myself really getting into it. But I still I think part of that was because I just hated her so much. She's really wow. like prudish. I'm sorry. Yeah, she's well, really yes. prudish and snobbish, and just she's uh-huh. she's a real cow when she's talking about her sister and like her family, and she's very self-involved. Yeah. But I was really oh, glad I mean, when she started having a little bit of fun, you know, and uh-huh. and she she kind of presented this other side of herself to us. And I thought it was interesting the way that you did that in that you gave us two sides of the one person. Mm, well, here we go back to um, Hogg and that tradition, don't we? Mm, and Jekyll and Hyde oh. made me yes. think of that. Yeah, I mean, she I mean, all, all these things you say about the character are true. Of course, I, you know the thing is when you write. Well, when I write a book, especially when you're writing, in, when I'm writing in the first person, I get very involved in the character. I'm trying to see the character, the world from that character's point of view. So, if somebody says, "I don't like the character," I actually feel <laughs> like personally hurt. I mean, oh, I mean, no, no, but, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's like I kind I of loved some... the book because I hated it. No, no, I don't no, know but why. It's, it's quite interesting <laughs> because. Of course, that you know it happened with Roddy McRae. You know, Roddy McRae does some really, really horrendous things. But I'm kind of inside the character. I don't really step outside the character and sort of judge them. I'm just going along with them. And um, where so everything you say about this this character is absolutely true. I'm in her world and I'm on her side. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So um, it's only it's only when a book comes out, and it's probably relatively because it's relatively new. This book. That you have start having these conversations, and you're like, you know, you of course, you, you know, you're absolutely right in what you say, but uh, it's like it's like a sort of a family member or something, you know. It's like, don't, what what are you being rude about, you know, my uncle for, you know, um, I can be rude about him, but you can't. Um, yeah, exactly. It's but, that kind of vibe. But yeah, but I think she, you know, all that stuff is true, but it, it's like, it's all, why is she like that? She's, I find, you know, she, mm. to me, she's very sort of repressed and all these manifestations of snarkiness and rudeness about her sister are really coming from her own insecurities and so on. And so I'm making an excuse for all that unpleasant behavior she exhibits. No, that that's putting it really, really well, actually, because I think that's what I'm trying to say is that all of all of that depth to her, the understanding why she's like that and why she does the things she does and why she hasn't tried any of these experiences that Rebecca goes on to have is actually what what makes you engage with her, even though I find her unlikable. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I mean, you know, she at the beginning of the book when she because she feels she can't go to see Braithwaite as herself because Braithwaite would realize that she's the sister of. Mm. as previous client um so but as soon as she kind of invents this persona of rebecca you know she says at one point oh it's rather a lark being rebecca being rebecca allows her to behave in a different way you know it's 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 tied up with this idea of personas which you know runs through the book and actually without any intention of mine uh, runs through all my books you know i think even in the, the two french detective novels you know, characters are continually not behaving in a natural way. They're, they they behave in a way that they think people expect them to behave, and they adopt sort of personas and behave mm. 
as they think other people expect them to behave. So in a way, the sort of narrator with her Rebecca persona as a kind of extension of that, it allows her to be someone else. And this, of course, all ties in with uh, the ideas you find in R.D. Lang. I realise this is a podcast and not television. I'm now holding up the cover of R.D. Lang's <laughs> famous book, uh, The Divided Self, which is actually a postcard that somebody sent me uh, recently. Lang talks a lot about you know ad- adopting alternative selves or false personas, as he might put it, uh, in order to deal with certain situations. And I find that a very fascinating idea partly because I, I very much relate to it on a personal level. And I think mm, most people most people adopt different personas in different situations, you know, whether they're professional situations and leisure situations or family situations and, you know, peer groups of friends situations. You know, you act in, in different ways and to some extent can be a different person. I mean, interesting, you've, you know, you've moved all the way to Australia. And Jen, I mean, when I was in my... When I was about 22, I went to Prague. This was in 1990. And, you know, and for the, my early, during my 20s, you know, I lived in various different places, London. I lived in France for a short time, Portugal. And one of the things I liked about moving about was that when, whenever you went somewhere new, nobody knew who you were. So you could be whoever you wanted to be. You know, if you yeah. want, you suddenly decide you, you want to start wearing a trilby. You know, nobody says, what are you no wearing a gonna... trilby for, pal? Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you, they just accept you're the trilby guy. Just for the record, I've never worn a trilby. You know, so you can reinvent yourself. And I think that's a, a really interesting process. And if you stay in your hometown for your entire life, it's much more difficult to develop or become somebody else. Uh, so all these ideas, um, I suppose, I think quite fascinating. And um, I think that's why they, they bubble to the surface in all my books in one form or another. I'm really curious as to why you set this one in the 60s in particular. Why not make it more contemporary or um, put it further back in history? Was there something about that particular time period and the things that were going on in psychiatry and psychology and therapy that particularly interested you? Yeah, the reason the book is set when it's set is entirely to do with the ideas that were circulating in, in psychiatry at the time, particularly um, R.D. Lang, just to explain, I, I sometimes forget that not everybody knows who R.D. Lang was. Lang was a, a Glaswegian psychiatrist who in 1960 published a book called The Divided Self, which went on to become a real sensation in the kind of counterculture of the 60s, in which he you know, outlined some of the ideas we've been kind of touching on here. And he, he was quite a radical figure, and he, re- he really critiqued the practices of psychiatry at the time, particularly the sort of overuse of electroshock therapy and insulin-induced comas and the over-diagnosis of schizophrenia and so on. Quite, so quite a radical and fascinating figure. And he is a character in my book. My fictional character, Collins Braithwaite, is very much a rival to R.D. Lang. Collins Braithwaite writes a book which is a kind of riposte to Lang, and he becomes more radical than Lang, which, of course, Lang hates because Lang was the sort of superstar of the counterculture, and Braithwaite, in my book, becomes even more of a superstar of the counterculture. Um, so the reason I, uh, the book is set at this precise time is because it's when uh, those ideas in psychiatry um, were, were circulating, and... Lang moved from Glasgow to London because he wanted to be at the centre of this this kind of stuff. 
And so it was it was it was inconceivable really to set the book in Glasgow, for example, or anywhere else. London was where it was at. What's interesting for me about writing about London and the 1960s, I mean, as soon as you hear London in the 1960s, people hear the word the swinging 60s. And um, London mm. was not swinging. Um, it was swinging for a very small number of people. You know, probably two or three thousand people were swinging. The rest of the people were living in kind of post-war austerity. My female character, she is a woman of the 1950s, not the 1960s, and her her social attitudes are very much those of the sort of what we think of as the previous era. But in the, in the 1960s, social attitudes were not nearly as progressive as we tend to think they are. So there's a kind of clash where Collins Braithwaite is a character of the this, this sort of 60s counterculture with its radical ideas. So when they, when these two characters meet, there's kind of culture clash there as well, I think. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. And not, not just in that sense of it being different times that they associate themselves with. I found it really, really interesting that you had Arthur Collins Braithwaite be a northerner. Certainly because, I mean, it's one of my points of interest is Liz looking at that relationship between North and South. And it's actually really, really unusual to see Darlington um, <laughs> or even the northeast of England represented in fiction. Where, where looking, are you from, Jen? I'm from just a little bit north of Darlington, one of the pit villages oh. near Durham. Um, really? Well, actually, yeah. in, the, in the first draft of the novel, Braithwaite's father was a former miner from Durham. Oh, Oh, well. I changed it because uh, he becomes a railway family of railway workers because that was Darlington was the big yes. railway town. Yeah, um, it was. Uh, Actually, um, Wingate, the village where I'm from, um, was one of the first places to have a railway as well. Like we've we've got a pub called oh. the Railway Crossings. Yeah, right. Well, actually, the pub that Braithwaite drinks in in Darlington is called the Railway Tavern. It's a real pub, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, um, did you find the depiction of Darlington quite accurate? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time there. I generally just used to go to get the train when I was going to London or when I was going to up to Edinburgh. It was one of the stations. It was either Darlington or Durham um, going uh-huh. back up to uni. Yeah. But I did find it interesting that you had Braithwaite as the northerner and then you sent him to Oxford, um, which is really quite a culture clash. And then you had him in London. Um, so you've got yeah. this brash northern character up against these refined, genteel, yeah. um, educated, intelligent. Well, not saying that people from the north aren't intelligent, but you know that's the the assumption is that they're not. Was that something that you wanted to explore, or was it something that I've um, just pulled out of? Well, <laughs> out of the no, pages? But I suppose not. yeah. I mean, I wasn't deliberately exploring it, but the reason that he comes from the north of England was because this was the time where there was a kind of explosion in British culture, maybe particularly in English culture, English literature and theatre um, of, you know, what was known as the Angry Young Men movement. And, you know, all this is kind of in the book as well, you know, that's kind of working class Northern writers began, you know, began to publish a work, you know, John Brain, Alan Silito, John Osborne, who was actually middle class, and the sort of the book Colin Wilson's book, The Outsider, was published in 1956, and um, these were all young men, and that they were, with the exception of she- Sheila Delaney, and uh, the sole angry young woman. Um, <laughs> these were all men from uh, pro- sort of provincial northern towns, um, grammar school boys who often got scholarships to the you know, prestigious universities, um, but it was kind of an assault on the sort of um, you know, sort of the 
upper middle class hold on sort of publishing and writing in, in Britain. Uh, so yes, I mean it was it was quite a conscious decision to make Collins Braithwaite an outsider to that sort of mm-hmm. effete, more effete tradition of English letters. And you know he 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 makes great play of his sort of brashness. And you know interestingly, just going back to the previous conversation, you know he he is the son of an ironmonger in Darlington, he comes from a working class background and it, when he goes off to Oxford, he, he reinvents himself. His, his name is Arthur Collins Braithwaite, as you mentioned, but he begins to use his, his, his middle name, Collins Braithwaite, as his first name. And what is he doing? He is, um, he is inventing a persona for himself and the, the persona of Collins Braithwaite, you know, is an invention. Um, just as Rebecca is an invention for the protagonist. But yeah, no, um, I was definitely... I suppose the book does sort of explore that that notion of sort of outsiderness, I think, maybe, or a clash between North and South, which you will know far more about than I, I will, um, Jen, because you, that's, you know, your lived experience. The, the novel that I'm writing for my PhD, one of my characters does actually go off to university and changes his entire accent, his persona and all that sort of thing. So I, I completely know where you're coming from with, with looking at that. That tension. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there, there you go. Your character who goes off to university and reinvents himself. Um, mm. You know, I've, in The Divided Self, Lang talks about a young man who starts wearing sort of outrageous clothes and talking in a sort of funny way. This is a very common adolescent or sort of young adult experience. I suppose what um, back in the 60s people called finding yourself, you know, yeah. and, you know, your experiment with different personas, you know, you wear a trilby, you get rid of a trilby, you wear a duffel coat, you know, um, dress up in a duffel coat and brogues or something, and then you get into punk. Um, so uh, trying out these different skins is, I think, part of, you know, growing up, I suppose. Yeah, it is. And it's it's really interesting because, I mean, I, I remember even doing that when I was at university, when I went to Edinburgh, and people couldn't understand my accent because there were quite a lot of southern english people and also a lot of scots so instead of i don't say book anymore which my the rest of my family do i say book right and do they all and do they all call you uh geordie right 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 (laughs) they they call me a geordie or they ask I've, i've had a lot of people over here ask if i'm irish actually which is really um kind of interesting and also a little insulting <laughs> You've just insulted um, the whole of Ireland. Oh, um, I know it's all right. I'm sure they'll forgive me. Um, but it, it is interesting how we how we change ourselves and present different parts of ourselves yeah. and and hide others when we're in the company of certain people. Absolutely, and you know, just adapting your accent when you go go abroad. I mean, I went to Prague as an English teacher. I mean, my boss there, who was Slovakian, he genuinely thought his English was his English was very good. Um, but, you know, he thought his English was better than mine because I was Scottish. And, you know, when I was, I, I taught, also taught in Portugal and the boss of the school there um, almost begged me to tell my students that I came from London and not from Scotland <laughs> because she thought that, you know, they, they wouldn't want to be learning English from a Scottish person. But, you know, as well, you know, you, you have to make yourself understood. I was brought up in Kilmarnock. And, you know, this, this is actually a, a thing that, you know, when when I went to school, my mom comes from the Highlands and is very well spoken because people in the West Highlands of Scotland, you know, speak in a very sort of gentle, sort of very, people call it very pure, I'm not sure that's a word I'm comfortable with, but a pure kind of English. 
And mm. so I'm in working class Kilmarnock, um, going to school and coming back and saying things like water instead of water, um, wow. or Scotland bar instead of butter. And um, <laughs> my mum was horrified by these kind of things. Um, but, you know, if I went into school, you know, and said, excuse me, chaps, it's butter. You know, there's two T's in butter. Uh, you know, you're going <laughs> to get a slap around the face. I think it's a perfectly natural thing to kind of adapt to, you know, the surroundings or the people you're with. And there's nothing wrong with it. You know? mm. Yeah, I, I definitely get more northern when I've had a couple of drinks. And I get more northern <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm at brass band as well. Is, is there me. anything more northern than being in a brass band? Possibly not. Just to jump back to Braithwaite before we get too deep in the accent chat, because I can go on for a long while. Is Braithwaite's work and method based on any kind of real psychology that was going on at the time? Or is it just completely made up? Yeah, so Braithwaite, you know, he's a very larger than life character and somewhat monstrous sort of (laughs) chauvinist, misogynist, sort of aggressive alpha male. He's He's a complete sort of lion who, you know, broaches no disagreement, you know, he's a charismatic character. His kind of methods and theories, I read a lot. I mean, I've always been interested in uh, reading about psychology and psychiatry, reading Lang and accounts of sort of how Lang behaved in, as a therapist. Um, but also, you know, there were other characters around at the time. And it was a very, it's a very unregulated thing. I mean, Collins Braithwaite has no qualifications and he kind of happens into becoming a therapist after an encounter with Dirk Bogard, <laughs> which is actually kind of one of my favourite parts of the book. And he meets Dirk Bogard at a party, and um, Bogard was a fascinating character uh, anyway. So, yeah, the kind of methods that Braithwaite uses, you know, he's, he's very direct in his conversations with his clients and so on. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of based on the fact that this was kind of wild west of psychotherapy at the time. Mm. There are a lot of incidents that are far more outrageous than anything Braithwaite does that actually happen. You know, I mean, um, when R.D. Lang formed a a sort of therapeutic community called Kingsley Hall in 1965, and this was a place where there was kind of no boundaries between patients and uh, clients, and everybody wore their own clothes, and, you know, you could do what you wanted. You know, it's kind of like um, the equivalent of the summer summer hall school experiment happened at the time where the, the kids made the rules for the school and stuff. <laughs> uh, so this is all so sexy. And it, so this was this was happening in uh, Lang. I mean, Lang was such a personality that everybody went to his door and Sean Connery was a visitor to Kingsley Hall. And of course, he just got really, really drunk. And um, R.D. Lang challenged uh, Sean Connery to a wrestling match. <laughs> which you know just tells you everything you need to know about Lang because Lang was a wee wiry guy from the south side of Glasgow and uh, <laughs> Sean Connery you know that in the James Bond era you know it's, and uh, it's but it's like I'm going to be the alpha male in this room you know Lang was the alpha male and Braithwaite is an alpha male or is trying to be an alpha male I think I had a, quite a lot of fun writing the Braithwaite sections but also you know there are some episodes in in those sections where he behaves so repellently, I actually had trouble writing it. Yeah, I can imagine. I think I would have found it hard as well. Look, this is a bit of a wacky question, because why not? Are Veronica and the young woman, her sister, 
the same person? Is it that Veronica hasn't committed suicide, but this young woman has, has killed a previous self and is now inhabiting this new self? Is that too out there? I just feel like there's something in this book that I'm missing and I wouldn't put it past you <laughs> to be messing with my mind like that. Um, I, I love your theory. I'm going to answer the question in a particular way. None of my books have a very, um, they resist resolution. And I never tie up the loose mm. ends at the end of a book. And whether that's... I know, it's very frustrating. Primal. Well, you say frustrating, <laughs> but frustrating is one word. Uh, I mean, people often or might say unsatisfying. Maybe I don't want the reader to be satisfied because yeah. if the reader is satisfied, I think you close the book and that's it, it's over. And if at the end of a book, um, not everything is resolved in a neat and tidy way, then it, you are required, if you want to, participate as a reader to continue thinking about it and um this you know I, I don't do it out of a matter it's not a cynical thing it's um it's just that um you know with his bloody project although there is a kind of resolution to that book but i don't give all the answers to why roger mccray committed his crimes it's up to the reader to decide and i think the book that book has done i think has been a success among book groups because it's possible to look at the material presented in the book and have your own theory about it and point to different mm. aspects of the book and say, my, my ideas about the book are supported by this. And, you know, so what you've just presented, your idea about Veronica and the narrator actually being the same person she killed her other self, I totally love that idea. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, this is where my brain went. I absolutely love it. it. You know, but... The thing is, it's like, because I'm the author, you expect me to say, yes, that's true, or yes, that's not true. There's no such thing. I don't have the answer. Uh, all we have is the material presented in the book. And the, the ending of this book, obviously, we're not going to talk too much about that. But in my head, the ending supports various different interpretations of what's occurred. But what I want is a reader to finish the book and feel that they need to start it all over again because they're like, what? I absolutely want the book to be open to the kind of interpretation that you've sort of come up with, um, which I love that one. It's brilliant. It's yeah, the first well, one. That is, that is my theory and I'm sticking with yeah, it. Yeah. I, I do remember finishing the book and just being like, oh shit, I need to talk to somebody about this. Um, talking of books and bookers, are you writing anything else? Have you got anything in the pipeline? I'm now writing the final part of the the French trilogy. I'm not that far in, not as far as I should be, but um, that's my main writing task for this year. I'd love to at least have a draft. I'm pretty slow. And before I start writing something, I'm always like, this one will be easy. And then you start <laughs> writing like, oh, it's not. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a draft of that by the end of the year. There's a couple of other projects that I can't tell you about. Bloody uh, projects? <laughs> bloody projects so they're all bloody projects yeah <laughs> well that's great i am very much looking forward to reading that third book it'll be nice to be back with those characters again thank you so much for chatting with me today graham it's been um, a pleasure jen as always just so that everybody out there is aware case study is out now published in australia by text who also publish all of graham's other books and if you're in the uk saraband is the publisher if you can try and shop local because independent bookshops are doing it bad thanks to covid thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time so that's all we have time for today please download like share we'd love to hear from you bye for now